Just to let everyone know that we have had to record this month's episode virtually, and so the sound quality might be a little worse than usual, but hopefully nothing too noticeable for you all. Hello Skywatchers! Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in February in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes time to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. So allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. We mentioned Comet C2... (laughs) I never know how to say these things. We mentioned Comet 2022-E3ZTF last month, and so far it has behaved as expected. Hopefully it will keep getting better as it reaches its nearest points to the Earth at the start of February, and it might even be visible to the naked eye from dark sky areas. You don't want to wait for too long though, as the comet will dim over the month and the time it will be up in the sky for during the night will get shorter and shorter. At the start of February, it will appear in the constellation of Camilla Pardalis and will move through Aurora and end up in Taurus at the end of February. We have an article on our website on how to spot a comet. You can find a link on the podcast notes. Taurus is well known for hosting the Pleiades, but there's another open star cluster that's also located in this constellation. The Hyades cluster is one of the nearest open star clusters to the Earth. Four of its brightest stars form a sort of V-shape that marks the bull's face, that's the bull of Taurus, and they are joined by bright, the bright orange-red giant star, Aldebaran, that represents the eye of Taurus. The Hyades star cluster is best seen through binoculars that have a wide field of view so you can take in the entire cluster, and you can expect to see around 100 stars in this way. The moon is an excellent object to look at in any month, but some days are better than others to see certain features on the limb or the visible edge of the moon. The moon is tidally locked to the Earth, which is why we can only see one side of it. However, over the course of its orbit, we can see 59% of its surface. And that's because of lunar libration. The moon appears to rock from side to side and nod back and forth because of the tilt and shape of its orbit around the Earth. A favourable time to see Mare Orientale, which is found in the southwest limb of the moon, is between the 13th and 17th of February. Mare Orientale looks like a bull's eye with two concentric circles and is the moon's youngest and best preserved impact basin. That's cool. I love looking at the moon. The planets and the moon are putting up a show this month with several conjunctions. First up is a close encounter between Venus and Neptune on the 15th of February. So look towards the southwest at around sunset and you'll see Venus glinting brightly. You'll need a telescope to then see Neptune as it will be too dim, but be careful not to accidentally point it at the sun if it's still above the horizon. And then a week later, on the 22nd of February, Venus, Jupiter and a very thin waxing crescent moon will make a little triangle in the southwestern sky, also at around sunset. Then on the 27th, Mars and the moon will appear to be near each other in the south. They'll be at their highest point in the sky at around 7 o'clock, but they'll be visible throughout the night until around 2am. 
Venus and Jupiter will also appear to approach each other on the evening of the 28th in the southwestern sky, and then get to their closest point on the next day. As it's February, we wanted to highlight a couple of Valentine's Day related objects you can see in the sky this month. First up is the Heart Nebula, located next to the constellation of Cassiopeia. The Heart Nebula is popular with astrophotographers, as cameras and filters can bring out colours that are otherwise too dim for the naked eye to see. You would find glowing ionised hydrogen, oxygen and sulphur gases, as well as dark dust lanes within this large nebula that covers four times that of the full moon. An open starcaster, known as Melotz 15, lies at the heart of the heart nebula. Stars within this cluster are very young. They're only one and a half million years old. Ooh. Listeners in the southern hemisphere can also look out for the heart-shaped cluster which is found in the constellation of Monoceros in the Unicorn and near Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. Most of the stars in this cluster are massive blue stars, but it also contains a few cooler red giants. Binoculars can resolve at least a couple of the brightest stars in the heart-shaped cluster, but a telescope with an aperture of at least six inches will show dozens of stars that are arranged in a somewhat heart shape, which is what gives the cluster its name. If for some reason, you've had enough of love and relationships, then you might want to try to find the Broken Heart Cluster in Auriga instead, and that is visible from both hemispheres. This is another open cluster located over 1,700 light-years away. Those south of the equator can also look out for the Heart and Dagger Cluster that resembles a heart being stabbed by a knife. <laughs> you can find <laughs> You can find it within Pupis. A constellation we talked about in the November episode of Look Up. Fantastic. And as always, if you take any photos of the night sky, especially of that comet which is approaching, that'll be exciting, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website at rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, it is now time for our cosmic news. Ophelia, would you like to take us away? Yeah, so last month, remember, we talked about two different stories. So Jess talked about Mars Quakes and InSight Mission, which has sadly now stopped working. And I talked about uh, JWST and Keck's views of Titan. Would you like to know the winner? I would love to know the winner. I'm always hopeful. Can you tell me who was it? Well, with 78% of the votes, the winner is JWST and Keck. Wow. Okay. <laughs> A landslide victory for Ophelia. <laughs> That's fine. I think it's because we spoke about how amazing Titan was far too convincingly. <laughs> um, That's part I of mean, it. Yeah. Titan trumps uh, Mars every time. Oh, controversial opinion there. I am biased. <laughs> All right, so that was last month's news stories, but we have two news stories, new news stories for you this month. Uh, would you like to go first, Ophelia? Okay, yeah, sure. So, my story involved data from my favourite space telescope, which is XMM Newton. So, XMM Newton is the European Space Agency's flagship X ray telescope. It's been up there in space since 1999 and it's still working perfectly well 
what XMM is usually used for is to look at active galactic nuclei. So at the heart of every big galaxy is a supermassive black hole. And some of these black holes are particularly active. So they're actually gobbling up material uh, from, from their surroundings. And that's what we call an active galactic nuclei. Um, so Sagittarius A-star, which is at the center of the Milky Way, is not one of those objects. It doesn't have a lot of material around it, so it's not um, eating anything. And so it's not producing um, any well or much radiation. So recently, two teams of astronomers uh, used XMM Newton to look at repeated outbursts of light from inactive black holes. A hidden supermassive black hole uh, like these two, that we can we can sort of discover them when a star gets close to them, um, and then the star gets ripped apart by strong tidal forces, and that sort of makes a a a disk of of stellar material um, around a black hole. So the black hole was feeding off this this disk, and then X rays and and ultraviolet light and even optical and radio lights can be emitted by by this disk. Um, so these this process is known as tidal disruption events. Um, and usually these events happen once to the star uh, because the star just gets completely destroyed. Um, but these two are, are sort of peculiar in that the star only loses a bit of its mass uh, before it goes away um, and then loses a bit more um, as it comes around again. So that's why these events are called partial tidal disruption events. So usually when a star falls into a black hole, it will do that completely. It will just go in and that will be the end of the star. But what these two teams of astronomers have found is um, actually sometimes the star can be partially destroyed and then it survives and the next time it comes close to the black hole, it gets partially destroyed again. So what they saw was that was that these black holes gave out repeated outbursts of light. Mm. So by partially destroyed, some of the material of the star went into the black hole, but but not all of it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um part of it's outer atmosphere for example would get pulled into the into the black hole um but first time the star got close to the black hole some of its material was pulled into the black hole but not enough for it to be completely destroyed um and so it it, it lived to fight another day um until the next time that it, it got close to the black hole that's exciting do you know the the time difference how long between the first glancing encounter and then the second encounter so for one of these uh, black holes, it brightened every 223 days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the other one, uh, it was about 500 days. Okay, so quite like a, an Earth year, more than mm. year, almost two Earth years between the first and second encounter there. I'm picturing like a, you know, one of those nature documentaries where you have a, a wolf chasing down a deer and then gets the deer and the deer fights and gets away and you think it's got away and then the wolf comes back and then gets it the second time round. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that but with stars and black holes which I'm sure is very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and so you said it gives out a burst of, of light or radiation. Did you say what kind of radiation? What part of the spectrum are we looking in here? So with XMM, you could detect X-rays mm -hmm. and also um, ultraviolet light as well. Um, so that's what they, they saw. So they saw these dramatic increases in X-rays and, and UV brightness. Mm. And these weren't the black hole, the black, this wasn't the black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. What, what black hole was it? No, no. So one of the galaxies is about 900 million light years away from us. Wow. And, and the other is 1 billion light years away. And even though it's that far away, we can see the, the sort of impact of a single star being pulled into the black hole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, if if we're 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 looking at these events, you know, as there were nine hundred million years ago, um, or one billion years ago, these stars sadly probably don't exist anymore nowadays. Yeah, fair point. This was a long, long time ago. So it's exciting for us, but old news for that for that galaxy. Yeah. Ooh. Awesome. That's super cool. So this is the first time we've discovered a star that's been partially eaten can i say eaten partially destroyed by a black hole and then destroyed again yeah yeah um and that kind of i mean we have to kind of rethink how how black holes work right and and how um what happens to stars that are near black holes um if they're orbiting around it um because usually you know so far before this all we've seen is you know star goes in and, that, and that's it so why do these two particular ones, uh, this sort of behaviour? So this is, do you think that this is a less common occurrence or do you just think it's something that we haven't spotted as often? Is that something we can say yet? I don't know if we can say that at the moment. So since these tidal disruption events, whether they're partial or total, They've um they've only been sort of seen about a hundred times by XMM Newton. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you said it has been observed twice, as in, I guess four times. It's been those two different stars that have been partially disrupted. Um, do they have names? These events. So the first event, it's got a really catchy name. Mm -hmm. Ready. Of E Ras T, J zero four five six five zero point three. Dash two zero three seven five zero. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's actually first discovered by uh, an older X-ray telescope called Erosita, but it it only I looked at it once, I guess, which which is why we didn't know that uh, it was one of these partial tidal disruption mm -hmm. events. Um, and the other one, it's got a slightly shorter name. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called eighty. 2018 FYK. Okay, shorter but still not anymore. <laughs> I guess because they're, they're very unusual events, we haven't got a nickname for them yet. If it's happening once a day, we would probably find some other way of describing them. <laughs> probably, yeah. Um, so that one was actually discovered by uh, the All Sky Automated Survey for Supernovae. Mm -hmm. So neither of these were initially discovered by XMM Newton, it's just that XMM Newton did the yeah, yeah. So we knew of these uh, events or these objects before, and then uh, the astronomers decided to use XMM to to study them a bit, uh, a bit more. Amazing! That's super cool. I hope they find more 
partially disrupted stars or more things falling into black holes because that's always fun. <laughs> so usually tidal disruption events, astronomers don't expect to see another sort of flash of uh, x-rays and, and UV light for many, many thousands of years. And the fact that they see these flares happening so quickly, you know, within uh, 200 days or so, 500 days or so, it's, it shows that the star must have been really, really close to the supermassive black hole because it must have a really short orbit uh, around the black hole. Mm, okay. So does it help us learn more about the black hole if we see these events in quick succession? So if we see one event and not another one for a thousand years, none of us are going to get a chance to... Does learn anything new? Yeah, it would help us calculate the mass of this black hole bit a bit more accurately, I think, because you can use equations that A-level physicists uh, use to, to calculate that. If you know the mass of your star, then you can figure out the mass of uh, the supermassive black hole. And I guess because it's happening so quickly, you, you know the time that it takes for that star to go around the black hole. Um, you can calculate the mass of that black hole. I was going to say, you said that XMM-Newton is your favourite space telescope. What makes it your favourite space telescope? Because it's the one that I use the most. <laughs> um, so, yeah, X-ray astronomy usually involves really big and violent objects like black holes um, and supernovae. But there are things in the solar system that give off X-rays too. And that's what I used XMM-Newton for to look for X-rays from um, Jupiter and Uranus. Ooh, interesting. It's something that everyone has had to sort of learn how to how to do. Um, for example, Jupiter is pretty bright, um, and even though XMM mostly sees in X-rays um, and and bit of UV. Some parts of it can see in optical light as well. And Jupiter is very bright in the optical. Um, and so we have to be very careful whenever we point XMM at Jupiter in case we blind the telescope. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that actually happened during the very first Jupiter observation um, in the early 2000s. Um, and I think I think parts of the detector was, was actually um, damaged because of that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but that, that wasn't you that wasn't me no I, I i was still in school at that point yeah <laughs> oh so you say it's, it's brighter in the optical it's obviously a lot smaller than a whole galaxy but it's so much closer to the telescope so it's reflecting more light from our star that's it yeah it's so much closer to us it seems you know much much brighter than these gigantic things that are giving out you know immense amounts of radiation Nice. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to say, either about your telescope, your favourite telescope, <laughs> <laughs> or about the news story? Do you know what's coming up for XMM-Newton? Yes. So at the time of recording, XMM is due to look at Uranus. <laughs> my my observation is going to take the second of its three observations of Uranus. Um, so that's going to happen for the next 35 hours, which is exciting. Yeah, today? Yep, today. That's so exciting. <laughs> Looking for you, 35 hours of Uranus data. And what are you going to do with that data? Just stare at it. No. <laughs> um. 
what we're hoping to find is more x-rays essentially uh so in the past other astronomers have used nasa's x-ray telescope called chandra and they found x-rays from from uranus but that observation was only very short i think it was only like eight hours long um so hopefully with xmm because xmm is more sensitive than chandra and in total we have a hundred hours of observing time um we're hoping to find more x-rays from from uranus and we're hoping to get a spectrum um, that can tell us how Uranus is producing these X-rays and potentially even tell us more about what Uranus and its rings are made of too. Amazing. That's really interesting. Hopefully that'll be a new story we talk about on the podcast in the future. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. That's my story. Mm-hmm. What's your story? Okay. Well... I might be setting myself up for failure here because my new story is is slightly sad and is about something that didn't go to plan. It was it is about a failure, but it's a failure that I'm going to try and pitch in an interesting and positive way. Um, so I don't know if you're aware, but uh, the UK is trying to become a nation that launches its own satellites. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So currently. Satellites are launched all the time, but they don't tend to be launched from the UK. They might be involved in design or production or in research undertaken by satellites, but the UK isn't launching satellites. Um, And that's something that we're trying to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in the past, we've sent rockets from Australia, right? Yes, we have. So this was way back in the 60s. Yeah, in the 60s and 70s. Um, So these were UK designed satellites and space satellite launchers. But they weren't launched from the UK, they were launched from Australia. Um, so the sort of most successful one was called Black Arrow. Um, it had four launches between 1969 and 1971. And then, well, four launches, most successful, only the last launch actually got a satellite up into space. Um, that was the Prospero satellite in 1971. Uh, that sort of satellite launch program was then cancelled um, on, on economic grounds. I read so because of the cost of it it wasn't cost effective as a program um interestingly the last black arrow satellite launcher the rocket was already sort of ready when they cancelled the program so it's on display in the science museum if anybody would like to go and have a look at it that's where it is <laughs> <laughs> um it was replaced by an american satellite launcher called scout so yeah the uk has been involved in satellite launches in the past and satellite launch design um, but not from the uk but this month last month this month, <laughs> month was it? in January, <laughs> but in January, um, we attempted our first ever orbital launch from the UK, from Cornwall, in fact. So this wasn't a a vertical launch, which is what most people would think of when you think of rocket launches. So it wasn't a rocket that was pointing up at the sky and went straight up. Um, it's a horizontal launch system, which is based on used using like a commercial airport's runway. Which I think is pretty cool. So rather than building an entire new spaceport, um, they have sort of created a spaceport around Newquay Airport down in Cornwall, um, which is nice. And this horizontal launch system involves a sort of modified uh, Boeing 747, so a modified airline, a modified jet, that has a rocket launcher kind of tucked under its wing. So you have a regular plane that's been modified a bit, all of the insides have been taken out and it's got a rocket launcher tucked under its wing. That regular plane takes off from Cornwall Airport. Um, it has crew on board, it has people on board, and then it gets up to a certain speed, 
and it gets up to a certain height, about 10,000 meters up in altitude, and then it launches the rocket. And that rocket will then launch the satellite, if that makes sense. So that's how it's launched from the UK. Um, so the first one was attempted on the 9th of January. It launched at about 10 p.m. The plane has been nicknamed Cosmic Girl. It's quite a strange nickname, but there we go. And then the rocket under its wing was called Launcher One. It's about 21 meters long, if you want to picture it. People went down to Cornwall to watch. I personally wasn't down in Cornwall to watch, but I like that it was it was very exciting as an event because it would be our first ever satellite launch. It was a really big deal. This is not something I've had been able to corroborate. It wasn't on the Spaceport's own website. It's been on news stories, but apparently tickets to watch sold faster than the tickets to Glastonbury. Wow. You know, and I attempted to get a ticket to Glastonbury and that sold pretty fast. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, And on this rocket, there were nine small satellites for various different uses. It was released successfully from the plane. The plane successfully safe, safely returned and landed back in Cornwall. Um, and the rocket did accelerate. It did launch and it went through stage one perfectly fine. And then it went wrong. Oh, no. Yeah. What happened? Well, an anomaly occurred and an investigation has been launched into this anomaly. So we haven't got a reason yet. It's possible it didn't accelerate enough to make it get into its orbit, into its low Earth orbit, um, but it, it failed. Oh. So it is probably in the sea somewhere. That launcher and those satellites didn't make it to space, didn't make it to its orbit. So it's not, it's not the cheeriest news story, but it's really exciting that we attempted a launch and we will attempt launches in the future. Um, it still was the first ever orbital launch from the UK, even if it didn't get a satellite up into space. And yeah, there is this sort of big national plan to to accelerate, to improve, I don't know, to enlarge the, the space industry in the UK. So we're going to have a variety of spaceports for different types across England and Wales and Scotland. Um, according to the gov.uk website, which is what I was on this morning, <laughs> the UK space industry currently employs around 47,000 people. And if we build more spaceports and have more space industry, it'll employ even more. And apparently, Glasgow builds more satellites than anywhere in the world outside of the US. So the US mm. builds the most, but second on that list is Glasgow specifically. So we do build satellites and design satellites here in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Ah. So there'll be hopefully more attempts from Cornwall in the future. And then up in the Shetland Islands, so in the very top of Scotland, they're also building a spaceport there, and that will be used for vertical launches. So for traditional launches, straight up into space, not mm. via a plane first. Um, that hasn't happened yet. It's still in development, but it's possible that uh, Scotland will now beat England in this race to have the first successful satellite launch because they're going ahead with that. The UK isn't traditionally a place where you've launched satellites from, but there's a couple mm. of advantages. One advantage is that you want to do the complicated bit of the launch near the coast or over the ocean, because then there are no people should it mm -hmm. go wrong. Um, and the UK has a lot of coastlines, so you can launch things out over the ocean quite easily. And uh, we are nowhere near the equator. As you know, our weather is horrible. It's <laughs> very cold. <laughs> Didn't we? We recorded last month's podcast while it was snowing and we recorded yeah. podcast when it's below freezing. <laughs> so not this isn't a great place to launch a satellite that you want to go in a sort of equatorial orbit because that's very inefficient but some satellites we want to go in a polar orbit so they go above the north pole and then above the south pole so they sort of loop that way around the, the world um and that is that is a launch that you can achieve from here in the uk so the sat 
So the satellites that they will launch will be going in, in polar orbits if it goes. Oh, cool. What are the advantages of polar orbits? Why would we want some satellites to go over the North and South Poles? So you can be in a polar orbit and not go directly over the North and South Poles. So anything within like 20 or 30 degrees of North and South counts as polar. Um, and one advantage is if you want something that's a sun synchronous satellite. So you want something that's always observing the sun continuously or always observing the same part of Earth at the same time of day. Oh, cool. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess also if 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 your satellite has um solar panels that's kind of handy because you'll always have access to the sun. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. And if you're observing features on the Earth or certain specific things on the Earth, sometimes it's useful to see them at the at the mm. sort of same amount of illumination or like the same point. Yeah, and yeah, if you're getting power from the sun, it's ideal if you can see the sun. I actually have some friends who worked on some of the payloads that got lost oh yeah so yeah one one of the um satellites was called uh circ c-i-r-c mm -hmm. and actually my old workplace built at least parts of that Ooh. uh satellite as well so um what was circ going to be used for so circ was supposed to study uh space weather mm -hmm. So there's just like the conditions around near Earth space uh, that's that's caused by the sun. Yeah, so there were nine nine small satellites on board in total. There were military and civil uses, and yeah, some of these were world world weather, Earth weather specific, and I guess some of them space weather specific as well. Um, one was called Space Forge. Did you he hear about that one? Oh no. Um, that was looking at how you can make components in space, so how you can make things in space. Oh wow! Oh, that 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 would be handy <laughs> if we want to, you know, travel further into space. Mm, yeah, um, we'll have to have sort of three D printers and not forges, but yeah, sort of ways of manufacturing things in space. Mm. Um, so hopefully, they will attempt this again, and we'll have a successful satellite launch from somewhere in the UK, from Cornwall or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I guess. We spoke recently about the Artemis mission and how much time and effort went into that and how amazing it was that it went successfully. Maybe this is a reminder that time and effort can go into space craft and, and space exploration that isn't successful. Yeah, because there, there are things that they're going to learn from this this one, aren't they? they yeah, definitely. The next one. Yeah. So we should say, just to re-emphasize, Cosmic Girl, the plane, and the people on that plane, they're fine. There was no anomaly. Yeah. yeah. They were back in Cornwall. Um, yeah, so maybe some no more news will come out of this when they work out what the anomaly was, why it didn't accelerate as much as it should have accelerated and reached low Earth orbit. And maybe more news will come out of this when we successfully do launch a satellite um, or multiple satellites into space. Hmm. So that is my news story. One other thing, which interestingly also happened on the 9th of January, uh, the same time as Cosmic Girl the plane took that satellite launcher out from Cornwall. Um, it's, there was a fireball that was spotted um, across the UK. It was viewable throughout the sort of southern half of the UK and through the Netherlands as well um, at around 8 p.m. in UK time. Uh, did you see it, Ophelia? No, I no, I remember exactly where I was. <laughs> <laughs> Not looking at a fireball. <laughs> Not looking at a fireball. I was at Waterloo Station <laughs> trying to get home. 
Um, yeah, I don't know where I was at 8pm on the 9th of January, but definitely nowhere exciting. And I did not view this meteor. But if anyone did view it, um, tell us, because that's exciting. And yeah, there were lots of lots of footage of it, of it was captured, um, including from lots of people's doorbells. You know, those ring doorbell mm. systems that automatically record. And yeah, this was a big, bright ball of fire, a streak across the sky. Um, it was a lump of space rock coming through our atmosphere at about 10 kilometers a second. Which was is... It... Go ahead. Was it literally on fire? Uh, it was It was hot enough to be glowing. It okay. was <laughs> flaming, um, the same way you can think of a flame on Earth. Um, um, it looks like a ball of fire, that's why we call them fireballs. And sadly, or luckily, I guess, depending on whether where it would have gone, uh, none of it survived to, to landing, so we didn't get a meteorite out of this space rock. It's just that some people got a cool experience for a few seconds when they saw it moving across the sky. It would, apparently, from sort of studies of, of watching it move, um, would have been about the size of an orange. Oh. Yeah, about 100 grams in weight. And if it, if it had survived the descent through the Earth's atmosphere, um, it probably would have landed in the Midlands. So lucky escape for you, Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our two news stories for this month we have the almost successful launch of the first satellite from the uk and we have these observations by xmm newton of stars being partially destroyed by a black hole all that's left to say is at the start of february you can vote for your favorite story by going to our twitter account which is at rog astronomers if you vote for the Cornwall story, it doesn't mean you're celebrating their failure. It means you're celebrating their partial success, just to, just to give myself a little, little edge there. <laughs> <laughs> and if you vote for the uh, Black Hole story, then you'll be celebrating for the partial success of those stars from yeah. for living another day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you'll be voting for Black Hole news just because you love black holes, which is, which is fair enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's stop trying to emotionally manipulate the list. <laughs> so yes, you can vote for your favourite news story on our Twitter account. You can look at our Night Sky Highlights blog or check out our coverage of this comet, the C2022E3ZTF, which is going to be brightening up at the start of February, maybe visible in the night sky. What's left to say is thank you for listening and keep looking up.